That's what's up. I am up. You are up. We are both drinking our non-coffee but kind of coffee replacement drinks right now. Yeah, but my coffee replacement drink it actually is a sedative, so I shouldn't say I'm up. I should I mean, say I'm yeah. chill. Yeah, Mine's I'm drinking. caffeine-free, but it gives me the placebo effect that I'm drinking coffee. Whenever I come back from the South Pacific, I slide into a kava habit until I don't want to spend the money to have it shipped to me anymore, and then I slide out of it. <laughs> But you can't, uh, well, you can't like get a cheaper version on you know any sort of delivery site. Well, I did find one. So the the company that uh, most of the that vends most of the kava that I was seeing in Hawaii, I bought a package there and I got their address. So it came from Hawaii and it's half the price of oh. of like the other. So it's usually like forty bucks for you know a bag like yay big. Yeah, it's a lot. And, <laughs> and those at home, my jaw was basically dropped to my chest. So, uh, in when you're in Hawaii, you can get that same bag for twenty bucks. Also, uh, for folks at home, Chris's hands are basically providing the size and shape of an iPhone. Yeah, it's bigger than an iPhone, <laughs> but like a bag of coffee, right? A bag of coffee for forty. So, like a pound of coffee, yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, twenty bucks seems like a lot too, and especially to people who've been drinking this stuff forever and used to get it for nothing, or they said five or ten bucks. So anyway, right. I got this. The souvenirs I got during my field season a few years ago when we collected the data for the paper that just came out called I'm going to advertise myself, Psychoneuroimmunology and Tattooing. Uh, the folks who were selling lava lavas and stuff were also selling these uh, these bottles, these alu bottles, which have basically the coconut shell top. This is Ooh, plastic, yeah. but it looks like the coconut shell that's Kava's drink out of. Oh, so. See, I thought that was going to be like a storage pod for the powder that you would eventually put into it. No, this is – so you can actually do it, pour it into a shell, and it, what I learned in mm -hmm. Hawaii – from the Hawaiian tattoo artist that I was working with is first you give some to the ancestor. So a little wow. here, here, and then over the shoulder, and then you drink the whole thing. Of course it is. All right. All right. So we are the Saucers of Science, which we probably should have said earlier, but for those of you familiar with us, know we like to jibber jabber a little bit at the beginning. Uh, thank you all for tuning in and listening. Today, we have Dr. Lara Durgovich, who is a visiting lecturer in the Department of Anthropology at Boston University. Uh, Lara received her PhD in 2013, also from Boston University. Uh, and her research focuses on ovarian function, mating behaviors, and life history in captive orangutans. Uh, and she's broadly interested, much like us, in science communication and outreach. And she somewhat recently did a TED Talk titled an evolutionary perspective on human health and disease. So not at all what we're going to talk about today, but she might like do a little bit of a riff on it later on. Uh, and she's also heavily involved with the uh, March Mammal Madness, which has come up on the show on multiple occasions. And today we'll be discussing her new paper, which is a composite menstrual cycle of captive orangutans with associated hormonal and behavioral variability, which just recently came out this summer in the American Journal of Primatology. So let's bring her on. Well, before we bring her on, I just oh. want to say um, I'm, I have like a ton of students in my primatology class who are really, really interested in, in, in reproductive health among uh, great apes. Just it's just out of nowhere, I got this interest from these students who are like, oh, I want to find out what sort of contraceptives primates use in zoos and all these questions that I had never thought to ask. And then lo and behold, uh, I had done a sort of guest appearance for Laura when she was teaching last year, I believe, uh, via Zoom and was like, oh, I got to return the favor because I know we're both public engagement 
uh, oriented people. And when she junkies. sent the article, just say it. yeah, you're a public engagement junkie. We're junkies. I, I'm actually a member of the International Association for Public Engagement, by the way, which you should. That's a should, thing. It's a thing. So yes, yeah, so we are we are junkies. We're doing it full on. But I was so excited to see this paper looking at menstruation and signs of ovulation in orangutans. I did not know that you cannot see visible signs of estrus in orangutans. I thought it was just us and bonobos. Did so you know that? My favorite, I, I think I did know that. But also, she and I have worked with some of the same orangutans. What? Yeah, worked, I know. You worked with orangutans? Way back in grad school. Did I think a we talked about this thing with orangutans, when but we like, had Herman Ponser on same, The exact same orangs. Oh my God, so you know I them. Know. I do. It's We're going to talk crazy. about your friends. I know. All oh, right. Let's shit. All right. Yeah. Beat you to it. All right. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. We are so happy you could join us today. Thank you so much for inviting me to do so. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Uh, so we kind of start off each and every episode the exact same way, which is getting to know a little bit about you and your journey. So how did you get into anthropology and decide to keep going with academia, and then you also put in a massive science outreach um, and education part of your career. So you have those two big components. So tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I got into anthropology essentially when my undergraduate institution, which was Tufts University here in Boston, uh, told me as a sophomore, you must declare a major. Uh, and, and I said, okay, if I must. And I decided that I wanted to focus on something that would give me a lot of options in terms of applicability, because I really still, even as a sophomore, had no idea what exactly it was that I wanted to do, uh, either in terms of focusing my academic studies or in terms of post-graduation and, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And so I had already had a strong interest in archaeology, but when I was an undergrad, I actually participated in a couple archaeological digs. And while it was a really fun way to spend a couple summers, I quickly realized that it was not something that I would want to do long term in terms of the fieldwork and the just the logistics of it. And so I ended up picking anthropology because it was closely related to archaeology, but I figured it gave me more possibilities in terms of the doors that it might be able to open down the line. And so I studied primarily cultural anthropology, actually, as an undergraduate, because that was what classes were offered uh, at the university at the time. And it wasn't until after I graduated that I decided to apply to grad school and shift my focus to biological anthropology. I initially thought I would be interested in studying paleoanthropology, but I then decided that I was more engaged by living creatures than deceased creatures. And so I ended up in primatology. Uh, so it was a very circuitous route that brought me to where I ultimately ended up in terms of studying bioanth in grad school. And so orangutan periods <laughs> is where we land, right? Yes. Is that not where everybody eventually lands? Well, I was going to say, like, I started with an interest in <laughs> tattooing. I still study tattooing. But, like, I just spent an hour watching Natalia Reagan talk about um, capuchin uh, clitoris. Clitorises? <laughs> 
right? Clitorises. So toggling to, yeah, clitorises. I actually had to look this up the other day, and, and I know that that is correct from having done that. Uh, and you also probably know from having. Would you like so, to see my 3D clitoris model that I use in teaching? Yes, I would. Thank you for finishing that sentence. <laughs> I am was vigorously shaking my head before I could unmute. I need to wear my clitoris pin one of these days. And I see, uh, what is that? Is that a Kaluga? The the flying fox that uh, is often uh, a parallel clade to primates on the wall behind Lara. The, what? Oh, maybe. What's the, the flying fox? The, the behind you. The, it's, it's that a... is a flying squirrel. So that was oh. uh, one of my lockdown activities was I got into adult coloring books for a while. Um, and I, I had a, a gallery there behind me, but several of them have fallen off the wall at this point. Adult coloring books? Yeah, but I actually, most of my... I most feel like of my read totally does adult coloring books. <laughs> my primate artwork is over here. Oh I've my got, goodness! I've got some mammal marshmallows. Wait, 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 wait! Did you draw these? No, 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 no. Oh, I think um, those are insane. Yeah, <laughs> no. This, uh, this one is I bought off Etsy, which is a drawing of Tawan, one of the orangutans that, that used to be at the Woodland Park Zoo, who mm -hmm. was one of my dissertation subjects. Uh, these two were done by Karen Henning, who is the art director for Mammal March Madness. Mm. Uh, and uh, this tattoo one artist too, right? She is. She's an amazing. Yeah. If if I were ever to get a tattoo, I would travel to go see her to do it. Yeah. Uh, and then I've got my Stotes's measurement, and then I've got a couple other Mammal March Madness themed. Oh, I'm not even sure. That's your diploma. That's my <laughs> diploma, which my father insisted on framing for me when I got Aww. it. But I've got, but I've got some other. Uh, Artwork, uh, the one on the bottom there was done by a student of mine. Oh, that's um, great. Which I have was a, fun. I have a t-shirt of the chimp with headphones. Nice. Yeah. I was just I, saying, like, how nice of your father to frame it. Uh, my diploma is on the wall in a $5 frame. <laughs> he he insisted. It was, it was, you know, you earned it. You, you got to display it. Go buy the ridiculously large frame that they sell at the university bookstore. I said, all right. Right, where's this clitoris, by the way? So, in a strange turn of events, the clitoris is not where it should be on the bookshelf, and so I'm going to have to investigate the case of the missing clitoris now. But... Oh my gosh, I have so many horrible jokes and puns right now. <laughs> I am sure having the most do. difficult time containing myself. Okay, well, <laughs> well so missing I'll clitoris. I, I'll see if I can find it eventually, but it's, I th it's I th painted with uh, sparkly red spray paint, so I mean, it's I worth seeing. I think it's my job to say I can't find the clitoris. I know, but, but... So I'm just sitting here like my brain is exploding with every inappropriate comment. Uh, it was yeah. an easy layup, yeah. It is an easy layup, but we still want to know what yeah. led you to the, the orangutan clitoris or menstruation sure. or... Sure, Yeah. So, uh, so I ended up um, wanting to focus on primatology in graduate school. And about halfway through my graduate program, actually, I guess about three or four years in, um, the advisor who I was working with initially left to go to a different university. And he and I had had not really been able to settle on formulating a project that was smoothly moving forward. Um, I had come up with something and, and uh, that was actually focused on stress hormones and environmental enrichment in captivity, but the logistics of that fell apart at the last minute. So I found myself kind of drifting aimlessly after a few years in grad school. Um, but at that point, uh, another primatologist, Dr. Cheryl Knott, arrived at Boston University, which is where I did my PhD work. 
And uh, she came in and I adopted her. She adopted me as her graduate student. And I started talking with her about potential projects. And I was interested in hormones in general. So initially I'd been planning to investigate things related to stress hormones. She said, what about switching to reproductive hormones? I said, sure. Um, and so the, my dissertation project ended up growing out of a collaboration with her and being able to draw on a large number of samples of orangutan urine that she had already, a series of questions and hypotheses that revolved around under, better understanding the reproductive hormones and behavior of female orangutans. And I wanted to focus in on captivity because again, I, le I had learned as an undergraduate that field work was long stretches of field work were not my forte. Um, and so I was attracted to the idea of working with animals in captivity or samples from animals in captivity, even though that can provide some challenges in terms of extrapolating the results to animals in the wild. So um, that was that was sort of the genesis of the project and then developed organically from there. So I ended up uh, having access to what I have sometimes been reprimanded in the past for referring to as a large pool of orangutan urine, because that can, I understand, give the wrong impression in terms of, of what the lab looks like. Like a kiddie well, pool or that, an Olympic-sized yeah, pool? People think. That's not necessarily what I mean when I say it, but... That's where my um, mind goes. Yeah, I, I, did <laughs> often, I did often feel that I was elbow deep in orangutan urine in the lab, just... Swimming yeah. through the pee. Yeah, but yeah, it was it was through my initial collaboration with uh, with Cheryl that, that I ended up focused specifically on orangutans and shifting from a an interest in stress physiology to reproductive physiology so this was because i didn't know that as an undergrad you kind of had much more of a cultural anthro heavy background because of what was offered so this was not something we we said we were going to ask but i'm curious did, has that background kind of shaped the way you approach orangutan behavior and, and and the work you do what sort of influence do you think that early cultural coursework has had on you i think it has been really beneficial from a teaching perspective. I think within the field of anthropology in general, I know that um, historically and, and in many places contemporaneously, there is still the strong sort of four field focus and the idea that you have to have some background in cultural and bio and linguistic and archaeology. And um, as I say, I did have some background in archaeology. And I think that that having the background in cultural has proved really useful in a teaching context often. In terms of the way that I approach research, the research that I've done, it has not been particularly applicable just because so much of the work that I have done has been very lab focused and looking at hormones and biological materials. And there's just not as much uh, relevance for incorporating cultural anthropology into that particular context. But uh, I think that it has been valuable in terms of helping me understand anthropology broadly as a field. And to a certain extent, being appreciative of multicultural perspectives on evolutionary thinking as well. So I do think that there is 
something to be said for appreciating the history of evolutionary thought outside of Western science and recognizing that as fantastic as Darwin is, you know, he is not the end all be all and, and or the originator of a lot of these concepts. I know I'm being sacrilegious here, but uh, I think that that sort of an awareness of cross-cultural thinking and, and studies has been useful in that regard. I had a cultural undergrad as well, so I completely uh, relate to what you're saying. And, and I think uh, the book that came out last year by Andrew Langlitz on the chimpanzee culture wars, right? Like you mm-hmm. sort of have to understand seeing primatology from a cultural perspective is useful as you pointed out, for the discipline in being able to integrate it. But um, but you have a new article that is out in American Journal of Primatology where you have, here we go with the pun again, you have pooled the urine of multiple uh, orangutans and, and examined it for what? What were you interested in and in looking at and for what purpose? And I think it would serve us to hear a little bit about orangutan reproductive ecology because they're a bit of an outlier, yeah? Yeah, so orangutans, one of the things that people who study orangutans are really interested in is their life history and reproduction because it is so elongated and slow, whereas relative to most mammals, primates in general have a slow life history, orangutans are all the way at the extreme end of that spectrum um, and actually have the longest inner birth interval of any mammal, primate or not, which is somewhat surprising because I think A lot of times people associate life history characteristics correctly with things like body size. And so somebody might think of a species like an elephant or a whale as as probably having the slowest development and the longest gaps in between offspring births, but it's orangutans that actually do. And so it is a question of how and why was that selected for? What role did the Southeast Asian rainforest environment play in that? What role did male-female social dynamics play in that? And the fact that male orangutans are also unusual for having the bimaturism pattern of adult males. Some of them develop the secondary sexual characteristics, the cheek flanges and the throat sac and the long calls and others don't. Um, Sometimes they do eventually, but some don't. And so it's been an open question as to thinking about the selective pressures on orangutan reproduction for a long time. And uh, Cheryl has done a lot of really good work in terms of the reproductive ecology of that and understanding how energetics is playing a really important role in conception and in shaping individual life histories for females in better and worse conditions. And there are other people who have done important work on that too. But I was, when I started looking into reproductive physiology as a grad student and started thinking about it from a comparative perspective, what's going on with humans versus chimps versus gorillas versus orangutans, there's really just a not a lot of data out there empirically about the cycles themselves. And so what this paper focuses on and and does is present the most complete picture that that has been presented so far of what the average orangutan menstrual or ovulatory cycle looks like. And so in a sense, this is like something that you would think would have been out there already, but wasn't. And so that was the goal of this particular paper was to assemble that data and be able to say in captivity, so there's, there's some asterisks that that are necessary in terms of interpreting the relevance of that data to uh, wild individuals, but that in captivity, here's what a typical cycle looks like. 
And then the other part of the paper is how much variability is there within that picture. So for an individual orangutan, how much variability is there from one cycle to the next? Is there a lot of difference in terms of hormone production and, and kind of cycle quality, so to speak? Uh, and then when you're looking across individuals, how much variation do you see? And I think that it's really underappreciated how little we know about that not only in a species like orangutans, but also in humans. So I've <laughs> talked to many other people who study human reproduction and, you know, lament the frequency with which medical textbooks in particular still present the human ovulatory cycle as this very straightforward and well understood thing and you know the 28 day average and there is just a a lack of appreciation for the variability that exists in human populations within and across individuals and why um and and that is even more true of the other apes just simply because we have even less data to work with so the goal of this paper was to put this out there as a resource for anybody who might be interested in studying aspects of orangutan reproduction to be able to say here's what this looks like uh and you can compare what you're finding to this to see how close it is to the average um and to understand that that source of variability. And because this data comes from captivity, I also think of it in terms of a valuable resource from a veterinary kind of perspective, mm -hmm. that if you are someone who works in a setting that houses orangutans, you know, how do you know if what you're seeing is normal? And so I think it can be, just as the menstrual cycle in humans can be an important indicator of potential health problems. Um, I have hypothyroidism and the way that my hypothyroidism was initially diagnosed was because I was getting wonky periods. Um, and so I think that the same is true when you're looking at other animals. And so I like to think of it as a, a resource for zookeepers and, and people in that position as well, as a sort of more theoretical resource within the academic community. The lack of data and lack of understanding of variation in the human menstrual cycle is a massive thorn in my side, especially as I go through, especially exercise physiology research. Everybody assumes that, you know, the, the females they're working with are on this 28-day cycle, which clearly means their hormone levels are at this exact point. And so we can clearly say how the menstrual cycle affects athletic performance based on all these assumptions and averages. <laughs> drives me wild. Yeah. Uh, I saw a headline just yesterday that was talking about how menstrual cycle phase is so rarely taken into account in, in studies like pain assessment studies. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's kind of remarkable that half the population experiences this cyclical phenomenon and it's just widely overlooked or oversimplified. Okay. Um, I know Kate Clancy has a book that's coming out, I think next year, that's going to be all about menstruation and periods. And I'm very much looking forward to reading it because I think she's going to provide some really good SCICOM efforts in terms of getting people to recognize that that there's a lot more to it than we commonly assume. Yeah. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about, it seems like most of the pee was collected by Cheryl Knott, but if you could tell us what it was like, and in a weird collision of worlds, I worked with two of the orangs that are listed in your publication. Which two? Um, uh, AZ and Kenobi. Okay. And also Rocky, but you didn't include Rocky. This Rocky is a juvenile. I, I was just <laughs> saying, I had Rocky's urine, but I didn't have any particular use for it in my dissertation. So it's yeah, probably we just double labeled water. We did yeah. double labeled water work with them, nice. but I just saw the names. So I'm like, oh, I know those orangutans. <laughs> um, 
anyway, could you tell us, I know you weren't the one to collect it, but if you could tell us what that process is like, because I'm sure you are familiar with it. Yeah. So as I say, there was a, a large number of samples that was pre-existing before my arrival or involvement in, in this project, um, which had been, the collection had been coordinated by Cheryl Knott, um, although she herself was not the one doing the collecting. She collects when she goes out to Borneo at Goon and Palong and gets samples from wild orangutans, which I understand is a much messier process. But uh, the samples that I got were all collected at either the, what was then the Great Ape Trust, what I think now is called the Ape Initiative, maybe? I and I think they had to, like, after the massive floods in yeah, Iowa. Yeah, there was, there was a major ago. restructuring yeah. there, and, and they don't have the orangutans there anymore. The orangutans dispersed to a couple different uh, other settings. But at the time, it was the Great Ape Trust, and so there was a group of orangutans there, and the keepers collected urine and put it on dry ice and sent it to us in Boston. And the other location that I was collecting urine from was the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle, which Cheryl has had a relationship with for 20 or 30 years at this point. And so she was able to put me in touch with the right people and facilitate that data collection. Um, but even though I didn't collect it myself, I actually did go out at one point for a site visit to Seattle and to meet the keepers there and meet the orangutans there. And I have a great video that I like to show in classes when I'm teaching and I'm talking about behavioral endocrinology or reproductive endocrinology. And I'm, and I'm trying to get the students to appreciate the sources of these data because when we were, when I, my husband and, and my, at the time, baby daughter and I were at the zoo, we went behind the scenes and uh, one of the zookeepers kindly did a demonstration for me that I was recording where he takes a paper Dixie cup and, you know, he's the orangutans are, we're separated from the orangutans um, by bars and so forth, but he hands it to the orangutan and she pees in the cup and hands it back and he gives her, you know, a treat or some juice or something. And I love being able to show students that when you're working with captive animals, at least, you know, these are really, really smart individuals and they are able to learn to provide samples in the same way that you or I would at the doctor's office. And so the that is one of the advantages of working with animals in captivity is that in this case, the sample collection is remarkably easy and can be done remarkably consistently. And so that's really nice from a hormone perspective because then you eliminate temporal very temporal collection as a variable, um, which is less important for uh, estrogen or progesterone than it would be for testosterone, but it's still nice to be able to control for it. And then just to be able to get data every day or every other day is nice when you're looking at the menstrual cycle because it gives you so much more of a holistic picture of what's going on. And when you're collecting data, uh, from wild orangutans, my understanding is that it can be very, very difficult to get consistent sampling across a cycle. And, and so you end up with a lot of gaps in what that cycle looks like. So I was really fortunate in, a, in terms of both the uh, introductions that I was given to people within the captivate community and then the, the keepers that I worked with who were really amenable to collecting data, both the hormone data and providing me with behavioral data so that I could look at the relationship between hormones and behaviors as well. I, I had really nice experiences in terms of the people that I was able to collaborate with. Kind of annoyed now that I, I realized and hear, listening to you, I went to the doctor last week and gave him a urine sample and I did not get a treat. 
Uh, human doctors are way stingier than zookeepers. Right. It's true. Not you even know, a lollipop or something the, like the in the pedi- old yeah, days. Yeah, the pediatrician will give you a sticker or a lollipop, but once you get once you get up to the grown up level, they like, they're like, no. They just, just put like, it in a medicine cabinet and leave the room. Complete, complete lack of appreciation for safety oh, provisioning. So uncouth. <laughs> so uh, I think uh, I may have met Rocky because uh, if, if they were dispersed, there's a, a very young orang at the Indianapolis Zoo uh, named that, Rocky. Yeah, well, so Rocky would have been, he's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 now. Mm, maybe Rocky too. Maybe. That was also a good movie, yeah. so maybe in, a good orangutan. Uh, but I think I well. was, what, there in maybe 2010 or so? Yeah. Maybe 2009, um, so it's been Yeah, a Rocky while. was a juvenile quite a while ago, but mm-hmm. uh, AZ, who was a, the big male the Gray Trust had, uh, is at the Indianapolis Zoo. Okay. Um, so what did you learn? about uh, menstrual cycle variation and and did you see any associations among cycle hormones and behavior? So in terms of variation, I learned that there is quite a bit. And one of the things that was interesting to think about was what are the potential sources of that variation if ecology is being essentially controlled for. So the whole idea of reproductive ecology and, you know, people like Cheryl and Melissa Emery Thompson and and people who have done work looking at female reproductive physiology in the context of energetics, that is an important contributor to hormonal variation in the wild. But for me, I was looking at animals where they have a very carefully provisioned and controlled diet. There's no threat of predation. There's not a high risk of disease. And so the traditional variables that might be used to explain hormonal variation didn't apply as strongly. And so I was not surprised to find the degree of variation that I did, but certainly motivated to explain it. And so in the paper, we talk about some of those possible sources of variation. We talk about how genetics might be playing a role because we know there are genetic polymorphisms that affect hormone concentrations in human women that measurably stepwise almost impact how much estrogen or progesterone you might be producing. So we talk about genetics and that's something that has not been looked at at all as far as I know in terms of any of the great apes and the specific alleles that are known to be associated at least in humans with this reproductive physiology. Um, We also talk about stress as a psychosocial stress as a potential source of variability because we know that within the body, there are obviously interactions between the stress physiology axis and the reproductive physiology axis. And so it's possible that there may be stressors unique to captivity that are affecting uh, reproductive function at different times. So we, but we did find that there is quite a bit of individual variation. One of the females that we collected urine from consistently had just astronomically high progesterone levels. And I still don't have an explanation for that. I mean, she was several rungs above the ladder in terms of anybody else when it came to progesterone production. And it's not clear why. And so I would love for someone to, you know, look at that in more detail and, and maybe try to explain what's going on there. But we we do find a lot of variability, both within individuals and across cycles and between individuals. The results that I found when it came to the relationship between hormones and behaviors were less conclusive. There does not seem to be a strong predictive relationship between what's going on hormonally and what's going on behaviorally in the captive orangutans that I looked at at least. 
mating was more common in the periovulatory period or the window immediately surrounding ovulation than outside of it. But if we're, if I was thinking about it, individual cycles in terms of, you know, higher levels of estrogen and progesterone are a quote unquote better cycle and should potentially increase mating motivation either from the female or from the male. Those kinds of predictions were not supported by the evidence. So on the one hand, that's not surprising because we know that for great apes in general, there has been somewhat of an emancipation of mating motivation from the underlying hormones much more so than than in a lot of other species. But I was still kind of expecting to find something and really didn't find it. So Which I have is a, also interesting. Yeah, it is. It is interesting and it's important work. And as we were sort of when you were describing how it's not been done and how little we know about human, you know, menstruation, we're all sitting there like, yeah, like what the fuck, right? But um <laughs> one of the things that jumped out to me in your paper in relation to genetics was that because these are captive orangs, you have a bunch of hybrids, right? And yes. I know from, you know, they used to not realize they were separate species. So hybridization mm-hmm. happened, you know, and I don't know how many generations these are so i wonder if one if you could speak to that if they are first generation hybrids multi-generation hybrids and if you think that there may be any bornean sumatra and i forget the third new uh Uh, what that's called tapanuli which is also that's also sumatran but right uh, okay so if that plays any role at all what do you think i think that's a great question because there is evidence that there are important differences between borneo and sumatra in terms of the local ecology that have affected the evolution of those two species separately or or along slightly different trajectories. And so if that's the case, I would expect that to be reflected to some degree in the genetics. I am not a geneticist, um, and so I cannot speak particularly deeply to what might be going on there, but I can answer your question in terms of the individuals that I was working with, most of them are hybrids and most of the orangutans in captivity in general are hybrids. It is relatively rare to find orangutans in captivity today that are either purebred genetically Bornean or or Sumatran. And so I don't have a good sense of what kind of effect that hybridization might have on the consequences of allelic variation on hormonal production. In the paper, I do we do mention, I think, one specific allele that has been studied in, in human populations that, as I said, is known to be associated with variable production of ovarian hormones. And so given how closely related orangutans are to humans genetically, I think it would be really interesting to see if we could look at what's going on with that allele or an analogous allele and see if the same pattern holds true. I don't necessarily feel that I know enough about the genetics to be able to make any prediction about the consequences of hybridization, but I think it would be really interesting for someone to look at. Yeah, that's some really cool stuff, and especially the similarities we see between orangutans and, and humans as well. But that's going to be a hard comparison to make and any argument to make until we have a lot more yeah. data for humans and orangs and chimps and bonobos, the whole suite of it. That just so much more yeah, data. I mean, when you sit down and, and look at the actual number uh, of cycles that are represented in the literature, it is so few for all of the great ape species, including, you know, they're obviously more for humans than, than for any of the others, but you would still expect there to be more for humans. Still, absolutely. Well, that's cool stuff. And and I hope people well, take up that cause. And I know it's expensive as well, because 
measuring these hormones is not cheap, which is why so many yeah. studies don't do it right. It's like, when was your last menstrual cycle? Yeah. First day of your last period. And that's how they control for everything. And that's yeah, and the orangutans are um, notoriously unreliable when you ask them that question. So. I can't imagine why. Yeah, they don't. They, don't <laughs> they aren't sitting and marking in their yeah. enclosures. In their calendars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway. Their, their self-reported <laughs> yeah. recall of, of the... Highly yeah. questionable. <laughs> so let's shift gears a little bit sure. and talk about your involvement with March Mammal Madness. How did you get involved and what is your role and what has become like this massive endeavor involving so many people? It's really exploded over the last five years or so. So I initially became involved simply as a player uh, or a fan. Uh, I was teaching at Harvard at the time. So I finished my, my PhD and I had gotten a college fellowship teaching at Harvard. And Katie Hind, who is the founder and director of the March Animal Madness Tournament, was also at Harvard. And so somehow through the grapevine, I heard about this thing that she was running. And this was in maybe the second or third year of the tournament. I was like, this is awesome you know, printed out a bracket and I filled it out and I followed along on Twitter for the year. And I said to Katie, this is such a cool thing. If you ever uh, need more people to be involved, would be more than happy to volunteer. And sure enough, a few years later, as the impact of it was growing and the size of it was growing, they were looking to recruit additional people. And so Katie brought me in as a narrator. My role is that every year I research and write several of the battles that occur in the different divisions. And so that entails learning what the outcome is, which is highly guarded information, obviously. But I am told, here's these two contenders and here's which one wins. Make it work from a scientific perspective. And sometimes that's easy. It's like, oh, well, a giant carnivore took out a little rabbit creature, like shocker. But sometimes it's not easy. And what we as narrators do is dig into the scientific literature, either for particular species in question, or sometimes if that's not a species that's well represented in the literature, we might look at something that's very closely related. And we look at habitat and morphology and behavior and physiology. And we are responsible for crafting a story that is accurate in terms of the scientific information it contains, but also plausible in terms of outcome. Uh, so it's it's kind of remarkable how many hours we, or at least I as a narrator, can spend researching and writing a battle that in the end takes 10 minutes to tweet out on the actual night of the competition. I know it's nobody in academia is going to be surprised by the idea that you spend multiple hours looking for one reference or writing one sentence, but the same is very, even though this is a, you know, tangential effort in terms of academia, the same is absolutely holding true in terms of the amount of rigor that's put into making sure that the science underlying what we're doing is accurate. But yeah, I started as a fan and then I, I just managed to noodle my way in to the team. So you're generally involved in public engagement with science and science communication. You've had a TED talk and you were teaching, I believe you were teaching a class on science communication, which is the one that I, I guessed it for you. That's correct. Yeah, I have um, a seminar that I develop and have taught several times now that is a writing intensive course aimed at or the intent of which is to educate people about science uh, communication in terms of having people understand the difference between deficit models of science communication versus other models of science communication, then practicing 
all different kinds of science communication. And so not surprisingly, I have structured the course around primates and the way that primates are represented in different contexts and what that tells us about how people learn about primates and, and how we communicate, how we can effectively communicate about them. So we spend one week talking about children's books and literature. We, we spend one week talking about Hollywood films. We spend one week talking about documentary films. And I largely through Twitter, actually, which is why you came and talked to us, Chris, been able to make enough connections with people in various areas that every week I bring in a guest speaker who has an expertise in that particular subject and who is able to speak to how that slice of science communication works and give the students in the class a direct perspective on someone who's actively engaging in that on a daily basis. Um, so I, I really have discovered passion for SciComm that started when I was in grad school that I have continued to kind of independently develop since I've been lecturing and doing other things in academia. So let me ask you the $100 million question, which you probably asked me as well when I was there. And I'll preface this by saying that I'm also now running a program here to train grad students and mid-level professionals to do public engagement so that it counts for the career, right? So my question is, has your science communication benefited your career or your research? And give us an example of how doing that outreach has come back to benefit you. So in terms of the research that I did as a graduate student and, and the publication that we were talking about today, when I was in grad school, I decided that I was much more interested in teaching than I was in research. And so since my graduation, which is almost 10 years ago now, I have focused most of my energy on teaching and I am not actively involved with any research programs right this moment. So the science communication stuff has not directly fed back into my into any of the orangutan research only because I have not actively continued that research. But what I can say is effort that I have put into building up the science communication portion of my CV and, and looking for opportunities to engage in that and get better at it has paid off in other ways. So I, as you mentioned, I did a TED talk a few years ago, which had nothing to do with orangutans or urine or menstruation or anything. It was actually a talk about evolutionary medicine. And that has led to several different opportunities, I've done a couple podcast interviews, and I was actually contacted by a book publisher who was who had seen my talk and said, you know, would you be interested in working together to a book proposal of some kind? Um, and so that's something that I'm working on now, which is an opportunity that presented itself purely because somebody had seen the TED Talk that I did. So I think that making the space and time to engage in those activities can be really rewarding. I fully recognize, though, that there is a caveat in that I have more flexibility to make that space and time by virtue of not being uh, actively involved in research. Um, you know, it, it is a trade-off. There's a limited amount of space on the plate, but uh, for me, it has, it has definitely been fruitful. When I look at the outreach that I know a lot of people do and just get no credit for. It's really heartbreaking in academia. The, the question was going to be, what are you going to do next? But you kind of answered that, which is a book. Uh, so yes. can you give us any details or a timeline or anything? Um, 
there's nothing firm yet. Okay, uh, so I, we won't talk am, about it. I'm work. I'm actively working on a proposal at the moment. Okay. It is related to my interest in science communication um, and primates, but it is really something for a broad audience. So if it comes to fruition, it's uh, hopefully I'll do another round of podcasts down the line at some point to do publicity. It's something that I'm hoping would appeal not only to anthropologists, not only to people within the primatology community, but potentially to the average person who might be interested in science. We love that kind of thing and we'll totally have you back on. Yeah. Uh, so to wrap things up, we always like to end with the what sort of things bring you joy what are you reading or watching or listening to that just makes you the happiest and most complete person or um i would say crossword puzzles are are my my personal like form of meditation i have a always keep a book of either uh saturday or sunday new york times crossword puzzles on hand because i find them really stimulating but also relaxing so i i like doing that um i have two kids so that does keep me busy but i've also been making an effort recently to turn screens off and get back to more reading and so one book that i read recently that i really enjoyed was lucy cook's new book bitch um, which is fantastic. Uh, yeah. I, mm -hmm. I got a copy of that and I read it and I thought it was great. And, and so that was probably the, the one that I read most recently that really was a nice combination you... of, of, you know, the kind of book that I'm, that I would hope to write that is I'm going to give you a follow-up to, a follow-up to bitch is, uh, Vagina Obscura. It is on read my list. One. Yeah. Good, good. Read that yes. one next. <laughs> it is on my list. Absolutely. And I'll, you know, I'll, once again, I have to go find my, my clitoris, my 3D printed clitoris so that I can have it on hand for physical representation when I'm reading it. But yes, Vagina Obscura, I've heard very good things about and I yes, I reading. finished it, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago. Yeah. But yeah, I, I read Bitch and then Vagina Obscura. So. Nice. <laughs> it was a nice, nice It's back. a good pairing. Yeah, it's a nice like, really uh, pairing. Wine and cheese <laughs> kind of pairing. <laughs> so you can find out all uh, about all of this and more if you follow uh, Laura on Twitter. She's at, uh, I did not ask, so I'm presuming your, your pronouns. So correct me. Yeah, thank you. Um, at Tinkering Prime 8. Eight as in the number, so tinkering P R I M eight on Twitter. Do you have any other, uh, any better or other forums that you're you're active in SciComm now? Don't at the moment. I restrict my social media activities to Twitter. If you Google my name, you can find the TED Talk, which is about fifteen minutes long. But uh, yeah, I would say you know, come March, I'll be very active once again in in next year's tournament. But Twitter is is where I primarily work. Sweet. We are also on Twitter. I'm uh, Chris underscore L Y at Twitter. Kara is also on the Twitter with her actual name. Actual name because Akabak is not a common one. <laughs> At Kara Akabak. And I also do the Instagrams, but not the TikToks. And so I am enjoying the reels. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Yes, it was lovely to meet you as well. Thank you so much and enjoy your weekend. Take care.